Sunday, the 18th of August. Welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne, live at Midori House in London. Coming up, it's a big moment in Hong Kong. Another mass protest is due to be staged. But has the pro-democracy movement survived a tough week of violence and increasingly harsh warnings from Beijing? And as Europe prepares to mark the 30th anniversary of the collapse of communism, events begin in one country that hasn't exactly managed to transition to complete democracy. We'll discuss those stories and take a look at today's newspapers too. All ahead on Monocle's House View, starting now. Well, welcome to Monocle's House View. My guest today, Vincent McAvinney from Euronews, along with the journalist and author Adam Labour. Thank you both very much for coming in uh, relatively early on a Sunday morning. Uh, we begin today with Hong Kong, which once again is braced for more anti-government protests after what was a relatively quiet day. On Saturday, uh, there was a protest by thousands of school teachers who marched through the territory. There was also a pro-government demonstration as well. However, a much bigger protest is planned today. Um, Adam, it's a test for the protest movement, isn't it, today? Because you've had such a difficult week, particularly the violence we saw at the International Airport and a sense that perhaps this is a test of whether the protest movement can retain the wide base of support that it's had until now. Yes, I think the key is going to be a key day because the question is one of momentum because the protests have been going on for a long time now. They have achieved the extradition bill to China being suspended, but it hasn't been withdrawn. Carrie Lam's still in place. And we've seen a definite escalation of violence uh, on both sides. Um, the police have been using much, much more force, but there's also been cases of police officers being attacked. Now, there's questions as to whether those were actual genuine protesters carrying that out or whether that was the work of provocateurs, because it seems highly likely that the protests have been infiltrated because it's in China's interest to ramp up the violence. But nonetheless, there's an overall question of how much longer can this go on and where is it going to go? Because they protests continuing 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 but what's the ultimate aim here i mean the protesters ultimate aim uh, vincent the beginning obviously was to get this extradition bill mm. shelved that seems to have happened but it then evolved into this much bigger movement demanding change and and you do seem to have, what, what, like, this is the 11th week of these protests and and the chinese government if anything is more determined than it maybe was three months ago that they're not going to give the protesters anything else yeah for china they must stay resolute on this point and one of my colleagues who is from hong kong is, is back there at the moment and i've been speaking to her about it and she has been watching for weeks the scale of the pictures but she says that the pictures don't really show the full spectrum she says on every wall there are posters there is spray painting and the whole city is shutting down for these protests and everyone is going out because they are worried about the direction of travel and many of them you know they talk about aims they definitely i think want carrie lamb to go uh, but they are worried about the future they're worried about the end of the 50-year deal that britain did about what could happen then about the disruption of the system that they're very used to and it's not as far away as it was in 1997 you know it was 50 years well now we've had you know 22 of those years gone we're almost at the halfway mark and people are looking forward to the rest of their lives and thinking this is a slow creep and then what is going to happen? And I think, you know, China's starting to flex its military muscle. It will either do one of two things. It'll either make them a lot more resolute uh, or it'll make them fearful. And at the moment, the numbers that we saw yesterday and that are expected today, it looks like it's making them more resolute. 
the question, of course, Adam, is what China will do in response. We saw those pictures of the military mobilizing all those vehicles in a football stadium just a few miles away from from Hong Kong. Now, the the the, the implied threat there is is pretty clear. Uh, the memory, obviously, is of 30 years ago and of the protests in Tiananmen Square and how they were put down. The difference, of course, is that now all of those protesters are carrying around their own cameras. They're, they're carrying that they're able to to live tweet what's going on. You know, when, the, when the violence happened in the airport, we were watching it live on TV in the UK. Is China really going to go ahead with that kind of repression when it knows everybody's watching? Well, there's several issues here. Firstly, as you say, everything is being live tweeted. Uh, although there's the shadow of Tiananmen and that extreme violence and the killings that happened there. It's very unlikely, I think, that that solution would be implemented in Hong Kong because, firstly, it would be seen, it would be watched in real time across the world. Secondly, it would do enormous damage to China's reputation. But thirdly, perhaps even more importantly than the first two, so much of the Chinese economy and China's growth as a superpower is based around its economy is based on its access to Hong Kong, its companies having uh, shares on the stock market there, the fact that Hong Kong exists as a place next to China where you can do business with a essentially Western legal system. So if that was lost, that would be an enormous blow to the Chinese economy, which would then have serious knock-on effects within China. So there must be a lot of people in Beijing at the moment doing a lot of calculations as to different scenarios and, and wargaming what the effects of those would be. I think on that on that point, just say as well, it, what's interesting is that the West's response has been pretty lacklustre because you have a very much weakened Britain, not in a position, even though it is a part of the, you know, the hand, it you know, did the handover, it negotiated the settlement, the, the one country, two systems. But Britain is struggling to really uh, get a, a kind of a proper say on the international stage on this because we're so weakened at the moment. And there's good reporting in the New York Times this weekend about how Trump's administration are really struggling with this issue because the Republican and Democrat and the State Department are all quite united in backing the protest movement and calling for the reinforcement of rights and the system that's working. Whereas Trump, you know, he loves a dictator sometimes and he has been tweeting Xi Jinping, calling for him to meet with the protesters. He doesn't seem to be making the same noises that a normal US president would do. And you kind of wonder what would George W. Bush have done? What would President Barack Obama done? I think there would have been at one point at least a speech reiterating the need for freedoms, for greater democracy, uh, for trying to kind Kind of, it's a difficult balance with China, but I think they would have been at least defending those principles because the end game is if China's system spreads around the world, uh, that is not good for the Western interests. If the authoritarian model is exported and it's put in place in, in Hong Kong and other countries, that's not good for the West in the long run. So I think it's interesting to see how a very weakened and fractious West is not really doing enough to support the protesters at the moment. Yeah, the EU put out a statement uh, yesterday calling for dialogue between between the two sides. And Australia and, and I think Canada have gone a bit further in their criticisms of China. You mentioned Britain, and I suppose it, it is a difficult position. Obviously, Britain as a former colonial power is leaving itself open to criticism by China when it, when it tries to intervene. But similarly, as you say, Britain negotiated the handover in 1997, signed the Sino-British Declaration in 1984 that committed to 50 years of this system there is a question isn't there that britain has a 
special responsibility here to be seen to be saying something as the country that negotiated the future of Hong Kong with China. Yeah, it, it really does. I mean, you know, the the charge that's thrown at Britain always is, oh, you know, colonialism, imperialism by China when it comes to Hong Kong. And that's a very easy attack because it is something that resonates with people, you know, outside of in the West, particularly that is something that now people are more aware of. Uh, but I think, you know, Britain saw through the 20th century, you know, disasters of just letting go of Commonwealth countries uh, by comparison and falling into disarray. Uh, and with China, it was obviously a very different situation. But they, they did negotiate this agreement that was meant to stand. Uh, and this has been now what was warned about at the time, this slow creep of China coming in before it eventually gets to that date. And the people there are just showing that they don't want to live in a system where they don't have courts uh, that work freely, where they can't be removed and sent to China uh, to main China uh, and it it kind of shows for business as well that they're going to be very worried. They don't want to do business in... Big international countries don't want to do business in countries where suddenly the law is going to change overnight and that will warn them off. I think you're also seeing a very interesting culture clash here. If you look back at the 1997 agreement, it was top-down. It was negotiated by two governments. It was negotiated in an age before the internet. Whereas what we're seeing here is protests that are coming from the bottom up. And they're being driven by young people with, as you say, with smartphones, with access to the Internet, who are, are just far more aware of their power and, their, and a power that didn't exist in 1997. It was inconceivable then. So you're seeing a massive clash between the way that social change happens in the 21st century, but with a twin, in, in a framework that was negotiated by a different generation in the 20th century. And that's where this clash is, is coming. And it's a very important one because it's going to be watched all around the world and it's going to have a lot of implications around the world. Because we saw something similar in, if you look back to the protests in Iran, uh, a lot of those a few years ago, there was a, a lot of that went up onto the internet, but they were quelled ultimately with with extreme violence uh, by different arms of the of the Iranian state. But that option is not so simple in China because, as we talked about earlier, the implications for business. And that's what's really driving the Chinese economy. So it's not so simple to just to go in and squash everyone like they did in Tiananmen. And what China is doing is treating it, you know, it is a contagion for them. It's like an infection that's growing and they need to contain it. So there's reporting that people going from uh, Hong Kong into main China are having their phones searched, they're having the apps checked, they're having the photos looked through because they'll be worried about this spreading around their system. And you can see that they're starting to use the levers that they have to try and call it terrorism at home because people have started to get aware of it in mainland China obviously and you had this week the actress uh, playing Disney's Mulan in their new movie coming out and backing China backing the police uh, and that has now said to the hashtag boycott Mulan was on uh, on trending for a couple of days uh, on Twitter because people were unhappy Hong Kongers were unhappy that basically China and they did the same with Jackie Chan this week who is a Hong Konger himself but the, I believe there's a situ legal situation with his son uh, uh, that and he has been having to kind of co-opt a pro-Chinese message now for a couple of years. But they're going to start to use public figures to try and quell this and paint it uh, in China as terrorism. But can those real images get through from phones onto Weibo, the Chinese Twitter network, so that people see what's going on? Um, Adam, you mentioned that, that one of the difficulties now compared to 30 years ago to Tiananmen is, is the presence of social media, is the smartphones, is everything else. 
And it's interesting, Vincent, you mentioned how at home uh, China is referring to this as terrorism. China, like lots of other countries, has launched an international TV news channel to sort of present the view, China's view to the world. I've been taking a look at that a bit over the last week. And in a lot of their discussion programs, they quite straightforwardly describe it as terrorism from the beginning. Terrorists, rioters, they don't say demonstrators or protesters. And you just wonder from a sort of global media management perspective, that does betray a certain lack of understanding of how to present your case to the rest of the world to begin from the position of these are rioters, these are terrorists. Absolutely. Uh, by immediately calling uh, protesters in their, you know, some of whom are still in their teens and their early 20s, terrorists, it, the, the word is very loaded and it might work to some extent with sections of the Chinese domestic audience, but any more sophisticated viewer is going to watch that and think they're going to switch off. Oh, unless they think, oh, this is really interesting to see how the Chinese state is presenting it itself. But the average viewer that just wants to know what's going on and have a range of views about things, as soon as they hear these loaded words, they instantly understand agenda-based reporting. It's not You don't have to be a really sophisticated media consumer to understand that. You're completely right. So it's self-defeating. But the Chinese state is stuck in a loop here because if the party line is that they're terrorists, then Chinese state media has to repeat that. But that means that Chinese state media will lose credibility. What's interesting as well, you think about you know one of the greatest figures of the 20th century, Nelson Mandela, was described for large portions of his time as a terrorist. And then he goes on to become the first president, a leader that many people now respect. So does this playbook still work? And what's interesting, I think, with the, China, with the Hong Kong protesters is there isn't like a single top figure in this. There are one or two public faces, but it's not being unified around one revolutionary. It is the people as a whole who are out marching. And it's harder to tarnish millions of people marching as terrorists uh, when you, uh, as opposed to like one leader. So I think it'll be interesting whether they start to focus in and try and sort of publicise one or two leaders and paint them as, you know, as revolutionaries, as terrorists, uh, you know, as having kind of very uh, antagonistic views. It'll be interesting whether they try and flip the narrative a bit and say that this is a malign person trying to force through a change on lots of people. But they'll be trying to essentially decapitate a leadership from the top that's not that's not a that top-down leadership, so it's not going to work. And the other question about terrorism is that if all these hundreds of thousands of people are terrorists... Where's the shootings? Where's the bombings? Where's the attacks? I mean, it's not happening. There's been some sporadic violence uh, against people who may or may not have been infiltrators and against some police, sure. But, I mean, the overwhelming evidence is, is that the violence is on the police side against the protesters. Well, let's move uh, to Europe now, where the German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban will tomorrow attend a commemorative event on the border between Austria and Hungary. It marks the 30th anniversary of what's known as the Pan-European Picnic. It's a day when almost a 1,000 people cross the Iron Curtain to Austria after a series of peaceful protests. Vincent McAvinney, this is the start of months of events, presumably, that will mark the 30th anniversary of the collapse of communism across states in Eastern Europe. The problem is, if you were going to pick a country <laughs> as a shining example of peace and democracy... Uh, flowing through since the mm -hmm. collapse of the Iron Curtain. Yep. Hungary is not the place you'd want to start. Yeah, it's not. It's becoming increasingly authoritarian. There are, you know, suppression of journalism. There is all the hallmarks that it's going the wrong way. And for Angela Merkel in particular, it's very tricky. You know, she uh, is in a weakened position politically. Uh, she took the gamble 
to let in so many refugees to Germany uh, a couple of years ago. And Viktor Orban has repeatedly nailed her for that, saying it was the wrong thing to do. They think, you know, he is uh, very Islamophobic. He's anti-immigration uh, into the country. So it'll be a very difficult meeting. Uh, and Angela Merkel needs to go there and try and represent the face of Europe that was the aspiration 30 years ago, an, an inclusive place uh, which had rights and freedoms for all. And at the moment, uh, Hungary is failing in that. Adam, it's going to invite those parallels, isn't it? And probably not just this event in Hungary as we go through the next few months that all of that promise and optimism of, of 1989 and 1990 around German reunification, the collapse of all of those communist countries... And there have been successes and the absorption of East Germany, for example, into a united Germany. But it seems to have gone backwards in the last five, ten years. Well, I would be a, a lot more upbeat, actually, because I think if you've got to take the long term perspective that uh, until 1989, until on slash 1990, when the communist system collapsed, none of the countries in Central or Eastern Europe were fully formed democracies as they are now. They were uh, either dictatorships or sort of quasi-democracies. Perhaps Czechoslovakia, you could say, was. But Hungary, Poland, Romania, they were semi-monarchies, semi-feudal states before the Second World War. Then they were uh, occupied by the Nazis. Then they were communist under communism for 40 years. So I think if you take the long-term perspective... The news since 1989 is overwhelmingly good. All of these countries, sure, there are things, there are issues of concern absolutely in Hungary, also in Poland and Romania and Bulgaria, corruption, the rise of organised crime in the Balkans, um, the centralising power, drive for power in Hungary, the uh, more conservative social agenda in Poland that's dominant at the moment. But these are sort of tactical questions. I think if you take the strategic look, the movement is definitely positive because these, all these countries are in the European Union, they're in NATO, they all have governments that are elected by universal suffrage, the borders are open, there's free speech. Sure, governments in all of, across this region interfere with the media. Well, you know, sometimes governments in Spain, in France, in Greece, in Italy also interfere with the media. And I think sometimes there's a bit of a double standard when we look at Central and Eastern Europe. Um, if you look I think for me one of the great unreported stories is the extreme violence that is used against the gilets jaunes uh, in France very often. You know, people are getting f rubber bullets in the face, they're being beaten senseless on the street. You don't see any of that in Eastern Europe. People are demonstrating across the region. No one's being, people aren't being beaten up or arrested for that. So I think there's a bit of double standards. Sometimes people tend to look down on Central and Eastern Europe as this sort of slightly second-class area. Sure, it's, democracy is absolutely a work in progress. There's a lot to be done. And there is concern about some backsliding tendencies. But overall, I think what happened in 1989 was an epoch-making event. And it's very interesting, as you say, that it, it started in Hungary because people focus very much on the Berlin Wall coming down. Now, that was important, but I would say that was essentially theatre because the real change happened that day absolutely in Chopron on the border when they opened the border and they let the East Germans out because once you open the border in an iron curtain that seals off half a continent, and it's essentially game over. Well, that is the first of a series of events we say that will be taking place between now and the end of the year. Uh, stay with us on Monocle's House View. In just a moment, we'll take a look at some of the stories in the Sunday newspapers. 
On Meet the Writers this week, join me, Georgina Godwin, as I talk to Nicola Tallis. Starting her career in the beauty industry, she was told she shouldn't bother with university. This talented historian, curator, lecturer and author now has a PhD and has just published her fourth book on prominent women in history. That's Nicola Tallis on Meet the Writers, premiering this Saturday at 1500 London time and thereafter available as a podcast. Well, welcome back to Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne here in the studio at Midori House here in London uh, with me, Adam Labour and Vincent McAvinney. We're going to take a look now at uh, some of the stories in uh, the Sunday newspapers, the UK papers, as ever, talking Brexit. Uh, Vincent, the Sunday Times, though, has got hold of this leak of uh, documents which paint a, shall we say, less than optimistic picture yeah, of, and, of what could happen at the end of October. Yeah, and this follows a leak. A similar leak came out earlier in the year, uh, which uh, had many of these things in it. But now what's interesting is what was being considered the worst case scenario then. This is only being reported as the kind of the likely impact. This isn't even worst case scenario. This is what they think will happen. So things like uh, log jams uh, of, of traffic uh, down in Britain's ports, uh, which could cause food shortages, medicine shortages, uh, a talk of a return to a hard border in Northern Ireland, which will then create road blockages, protest, direct action. Uh, you would have uh, pe- petrol running out in the southeast and London, delays at all the airports, uh, availability of fresh food. Fit. I think this is a recipe for disaster in the build-up to Christmas. I think if you look at the time when this is coming, if Britain in the two months to Christmas starts running out of these things, people will really feel an impact on their spending power, on you know, it'll be a shock to the system, I think, for the UK. At a, at that, it'll be a shock to the system any time, but in, in the winter, in the build-up to Christmas, I think it will really make Brexit finally feel real. I mean, Adam, a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of discussion about this, and, and, and I heard an interview with one person who said, look, actually, the end of October is about the worst possible time in, in terms of being able to stockpile things, because the warehouses are already full of stuff because we're gearing up for the Christmas retail season. So the idea that we can just stockpile six months of medicine, six months of food, six months of something else, it's just not possible. Yes, I think uh, it's the, the key thing about this report, what's really interesting, as you said, is that the, all this stuff in it was previously worst case. You know, this is the worst case. This is what you know they said was the million to one chance. But now it's laid out really clearly that this is what's likely, and and likely means this is what will actually happen. The return of a hard border in Ireland. We've heard so much about the backstop and the Good Friday Agreement, which was not at all really an issue in the Brexit campaign because people sort of had Ireland, I think, that box is ticked, that's sorted out. What's that got to do with us leaving the European Union? Well, the return of a hard border would be quite disastrous. It's predicting uh, road blockages and direct action. So we know that already that could lead to further troubles and violence. Uh, log jams, lorries being piled up, di- disruption at ports, import tariffs on petrol, delays at airports. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is this would be a catastrophic scenario, and I would really just flip back a bit to earlier this year, which is still a mystery to me. There was a deal, you know, it wasn't a perfect deal, but it was a deal, and it's only thanks to a, a few of the real kind of Tory headbangers that re- that refused to vote for this and the Labour MPs that refused to vote for it because it was a Tory government, that, that we're in this situation. You know, people voted for Brexit, a deal was put forward, 
obviously you could argue backwards and forwards and all day and all night whether whether it was a flawed deal and it was flawed but it was a deal if it had gone through we would not be in this position none of none of these things would be predicted because there would have been a structure but now we're talking about leaving without the structure i think as well just another point just to add i mean i've covered lots of big events in the uk things like big floods terror attacks and britain was good at dealing with uh, things that it can plan for it was good at dealing with terror attacks and the response to that it was good at dealing it's quite good at dealing with flooding normally but the one thing that really shook my confidence in what is branded a Rolls-Royce civil service was the response to Grenfell I was there for weeks and it was a disaster the government was literally physically a mile away and it couldn't get a grip on what was going on the agencies of government struggled it was down to the charity sector to solve that I, in my mind now, just cannot foresee any civil service around the world being able to deal with all of these separate scenarios going off. A lack of food, a lack of medicine, the public unrest. And with we this is also not encompassing the fact that foreign governments will likely take advantage of that chaos. People that don't like the UK, you can think about North Korea, it put a, a, a computer virus which took down the NHS compute system. Uh, you think about Iran, you think about Russia trying to add more chaos into that mix, they'll see it as a great opportunity. Uh, And you can see the spread of things around social media. And we had riots in London 2011, which wasn't even social media at its peak. If you had something like that replicated again, where, you know, this uh, this movement, which is rapidly shifting, and they struggled to get hold, they tried to shut down, you know, how long ago it was, it was Blackberry Messenger, the government was talking about even shutting it down. Well, I think this is a real going to be a chaotic winter if this stuff comes true and then other countries decide to jump in on it there's no government in the world that can deal with all of these concurrent issues going on why do you think the civil service was so hopeless dealing with grenfell i think firstly they didn't understand the community um you had a council which had had cuts uh, and and i think really it was just there wasn't boots on the ground they needed to put a rapid deployment force mm. of people down there they needed to go around departments get people to put on flat uh, to put on you know high-vis vests and just be there and process things there and they weren't and when scientology can have a tent set up to try and help people out but there is not an official british government presence apart from the emergency services that it was shocking, shocking. it was shocking yeah. Absolutely. Let's have a look at a couple of other uh, stories quickly in the newspapers. Uh, one in the New York Times about the repatriation of children whose uh, families have links to uh, Islamist extremists. Yeah, I mean, you had uh, it, people being taken, young children being taken to the so-called Islamic State a couple of years ago, and you've obviously had children being born there, and now many of them are orphans, some of them are only have got mothers left uh, because of the fighting, uh, and now it's the case of what to do with these so-called ISIS children, and it's a report uh, that says that uh, recently you've got about 1,300 children in there, and there have been some attempts to repatriate, but at the moment European countries are only wanting to take uh, small groups, so there was a group of about 30 or so who went to France and Belgium but those were children who were orphans and they're seen as being easier to de-radicalise if they have been radicalised or if they were so young that they won't know what's going on those are the people that people are wanting to take not children uh, and, and their parents who might still be invested in the cause who might come back and take action here I mean Adam there seems to be a real reluctance around the world to confront this yes and I think it's a it's a real issue because people don't want to have these people uh, former ISIS fighters 
fighters back in their country. It's, there's a very questionable legal framework of how you deal with them. We've had the whole story about Shamima Begum uh, not being allowed back to Britain and her baby dying and some people saying that that's the right thing to do because she essentially went over to the other side and was uh, on the ISIS side but at the same time she was a British citizen. So again it it's, reminds me a little bit of the whole Hong Kong story that the structures that are in place of diplomacy and statecraft, they're all 19th and 20th century structures. They're not, they're not fit for purpose dealing with these 21st century issues. And that doesn't mean I have easy or glib answers as this must happen or that must happen. But we're in a world that's evolving and changing so rapidly now that we don't have the tools for dealing with it. Almost, almost like Grenfell as and well. And oh, that's on a local level, on a very specific local level. There's another story to say that the so-called Jihadi Jack, who was a British uh, <clears throat> uh, young man who went off to fight for this, his parents transferred him money because he said he wanted to come home at one point. They have now picked up a criminal conviction for that. Uh, but he has now, it's been reported overnight, been stripped of his UK citizenship, even though he was born, raised fully in Oxfordshire because he's a dual national with Canada through some family lineage, which I, I wasn't aware of. But I mean, it's Britain racing to strip him of the British citizenship and then trying to dump him as a problem on Canada and it was apparently one of the last actions Theresa May's government made because they don't want him coming back but then you could see Canada being like hold on how is this person more our responsibility than yours we're just leaving him in limbo yeah there is a danger that you create a bigger problem by leaving these people there because they're all going to grow up radicalized in this camp whereas if you brought some of them back you could put them through de-radicalization programs. And also you're looking at dealing with a supranational or international problem with national tools and through national interests. I mean, it's obviously not the answer to just uh, arbitrarily strip him of his British citizenship and leave it to Canada because then Canada will do it. There'll be someone the other way around. The Canada will do it and then be dumped in Britain. You know, you need to, these things need to be coordinated and thought through. Sadly, we're uh, out of time there. We'll have to wrap it up. Thank you very much to Vincent McAvinney and to Adam LeBeau for coming in this morning. Our supervising uh, producer on Monocle's house here was Ben Ryan. Our researcher, Charlie Phil McCourt, and our studio manager was Max Barr. The weekday edition of The House View returns at 1800 London time on Monday. For now, though, from me, Paul Osborne, thank you for listening and enjoy your Sunday. 